We are continuing today to think about this idea of a theology of trouble. How are we to think about the aggravations and anguishes that visit our lives? And today's title is simply Misinterpretation because as we've alluded to briefly in other sermons, we'll do so more pronouncedly today. One of the worst things that happens when you are dealt something that you really wish you didn't have or you're refused something you really wish you did have is that the sense that somehow or another God is being cruel or that he's just turning a deaf ear to you or that he's, he's checked out for a really long lunch break and he's not likely to return. These things amplify and aggravate the woe that you experience. And so we're going to talk about that because we're always tempted to misinterpret what is going on. And this is what in this famous psalm Asaph is telling us. He's telling us about his own misinterpretation of what's going on in the universe. His own misinterpretation of how God has been dealing with him and how he's been governing his affairs all around him. It seems extra injurious and extra unfair, and it's very baffling. There's a story that you may know of called A Good Man is Hard to Find that Flannery O'Connor wrote. And in 1961, a professor at a college in yet another inspiring act that would make you want to send your kids to college writes to Flannery O'Connor, and says this. Upon reading this story, he says, We've debated at length several possible interpretations, none of which satisfies us. He goes on to say, We've come to the conclusion that this misfit character in your story, and the misfit, as you may remember if you took an English class at some point, is this dude who breaks out of jail, holds up a family, and has this terrifying showdown with this grandma in which he says, as I imagine him saying, when she is trying to assure him that he needs to talk to Jesus, when she's trying to assure him that he's a good man, and she says, Jesus. And he goes, Jesus. They say he rose the dead. He shouldn't have done that. I wasn't there, so I don't know. But if he did everything he said he did, there ain't nothing for you to do but throw off everything and follow him. And see that Jesus, he's done thrown everything off balance. That's how I imagine him talking. She doesn't have the dialect in the book. And so this class is trying to make heads or tail out of what is going on in the story. Where this grandmother, who's the religious person, is supposed to be the one who understands what's up in the universe, but it turns out it's the felon, the murderer, who realizes the full implication. If Jesus is real and he got it from the dead, then we're answerable to him. And if he didn't do it, then you may as well do whatever you please because that's all you got. And if it makes you happy to kill people, then kill them. That's the ludicrous, absurd, stark message. She's taking it to an extreme. So this class is trying to figure out, what is she up to here? I just told you what she was up to. 
That was the proper interpretation. I don't know if it is, but it's way better than what they came up with. But this professor starts to say, we're imagining that the misfit is an imaginary character, that he doesn't actually exist, and that Bailey, the father, is, and it attributes all these kind of wackadoo notions, like, that don't make any sense. And so at the end, they say, if you'll give us any further comments or help us with our interpretation, we would be really glad. They've come up with this really outlandish, the farthest thing from a sensible interpretation that they could imagine. And here's how she responds. On the 28th day of March, 1961, the interpretation of your 90 students and three teachers is fantastic and about as far from my intentions as it could be. That's a great way to start a letter. You have a fantastical interpretation and is about as far from anything I ever imagined writing as you could get. If it were a legitimate interpretation, the story would be little more than a trick. And its interest would be simply for abnormal psychology. I am not interested in abnormal psychology. As she goes on, she reminds him that the meaning of a story should go on expanding for the reader the more he thinks about it. The meaning can't be captured in an interpretation. If teachers are in the habit of approaching a story as if it were a research problem, for which any answer is believable, so long as it is not obvious, then I think students will never learn to enjoy fiction. If you're going to approach interpretation as a problem to be solved, and the only legitimate interpretations are the ones that couldn't possibly be right, that couldn't possibly come to mind, then people are never going to learn to do this stuff. And at the end, she says, as she signs off, my tone is not meant to be obnoxious. I am in a state of shock. That's the best way to end a letter ever. I don't mean to be obnoxious. I'm just in a state of shock. She can't believe how gross the misinterpretation is. How much they have brought to bear this world inside them. As people have said, your inscape determines your landscape. The configuration of your insides determines a whole lot about what you can see on the outside, what you interpret about the outside. What you can see, says Diggory and the magician's nephew, depends a whole lot on what kind of person you are. And the psalmist is dealing with his own misinterpretation. But he realizes it. Because good things are going on inside of him. He says... Surely God's good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is an affirmation. We say it at church. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I thought I was securely walking down the stairs of my house, and, but I was wearing socked feet on oak treads. And I nearly bit it. My feet came out from under me. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, part of the misinterpretation that happens for this psalmist in the middle of some kind of travail, we don't know what it is, we just know that he describes it as all day long I've been plagued. All day long I've been punished. It's in vain that I've tried to follow you. All of this 
has been oppressive to me. He's painting a picture of the kind of conditions you don't want. And I want you to think first as we're thinking about misinterpretation of this. You need to be educated by and then exit from your envy. You need to be educated by and then exit from your envy. The psalmist says, I almost bumped my head on a slipping slide of life because I lost my footing. I started in my anguish. Things were going poorly for me. But to amplify how poorly they went, I added my own envy to it. And I created more suffering for myself. I engineered more trouble for myself by my envy. And you know, envy's been described in several ways. And the most basic way, envy is jealousy. Somebody has something that you want. But people who have thought about the seven deadly sins have said things like, envy is when you mourn with those who rejoice. And you rejoice with those who mourn. Envy is when you want everybody to be just as miserable as you are. The entire internet is based on envy. The whole joy we have in lopping off public figures and cutting them down to size and rejoicing when bad things happen to them and they self-destruct, it's all envy. It makes us happy to watch famous, rich, successful people self-destruct. It's very gratifying. It helps us sleep at night. And the psalmist says, here's what happened to me. I started envying the arrogant. Because here I was in this mess. Maybe even not a mess of my own making. Things were falling apart. Nothing was what I wanted it to be. And to add to that, I started looking around at people who didn't give God the time of day. And what was their life like? Well, of course. They were people who walked around and they... They ate pizza exclusively, and as they did, their bodies became chiseled. I realized, here I am working my fingers to the bone for 60 hours a week, and at the end of the week, I get my paycheck, and after taxes have been taken out, I'm getting pennies. These guys work for three days a week. They show up at the office late, and their wallets are full of money. They don't ever brush their teeth, but their teeth are glistening. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. You see what's happening? He might be right. or He might be skewed a bit. Because his own anguish, his own travail has put him in a place where his self-pity and his envy have formed a poisonous concoction that's making his sight kind of hazy. And it's amplifying his own anxiety. It's amplifying his own anguish because it seems so injurious of God. Aren't you supposed to be the one who blesses your people and curses your enemies? But it looks to me as I survey the universe that you're cursing the ones you should be blessing, and you're blessing the ones you should be cursing. 
ain't nobody got time for that. So what am I to do? This is the problem. This is the envy. And I'd say, be educated by your envy. This is an idea that Paul Tripp helps me understand. That when you find yourself in some kind of struggle, notice the things you become particularly envious of in others. Because it will be educational to you. It will be revelatory to you. There are things right now that you struggle with that actually create suffering in your life because of your envy. You walk around and you think, you know, you go to Covenant College and you, you, you're the one person that it didn't happen for that you showed up to freshman orientation and then within an hour you were engaged. And you're like, what's wrong with me? I've been here for two weeks and I'm not engaged. It's a silly joke. Maybe you want to be married so badly and it's not happening. And all that it seems like to you is that there's this big cosmic joke that every four or five seconds there's a new picture on Instagram of someone flashing a ring. She said yes, or whatever they do. And you act happy in front of people. Oh my goodness, that's so fantastic. And then you weep yourself to sleep. Maybe it's a family you wish you had. What's everybody else? It's so much a better family that they came from than I did. So much better upbringing than I had. Why do they have so much better job? Why do they make so much better money? Why is their work so much more satisfying? God, they have all those kids. Why can't I have any kids? There are all kinds of things that you notice in particular. Of all the things in the universe to notice, you notice this thing, this deprivation, this thing you think you should have but you don't have. And so you notice someone else having it, and it makes you hate them, it makes you gossip about them, it makes you want to level them, and it makes you want to complain to God. What gives here? Well, be educated by this because a lot of this envy is educating you as to what the biggest rival for God is in your own heart. You are saying, whether you realize it or not, God, you are severely mismanaging the universe. It is clear that I am a far better ruler of the universe than you. I know infinitely better than you do how things should go. And you're not doing it. You're doing it for them, and I don't know why, because they're clearly a loser. But why aren't you doing it for me? You start to look around and say, what things am I noticing in particularly? What things am I noticing most acutely? And that's probably going to lead you back like Hansel and Gretel through the woods to the place in your own inner life where you are demanding, where you have set up a criteria that says, God, these are what I must have to be whole, to be complete, to be a person. So you be educated by your envy. But then, you got to exit from it. you got to exit from it. This is what the psalmist says. So all day long, I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. And if I had said, I'm going to speak this way, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. 
You have to exit from your envy after you've understood something about it, after it's instructed you on your own heart in the middle of trouble. You have to exit from it and enter into divine reality, which is what the psalmist says here. He says, I came into the sanctuary of God where the presence of God is. I brought God back into the picture more firmly, more broadly than than the narrow frame of time that I'm tempted to bring him into. And I started to realize some things. I understood their final destiny. And then he goes on, and this is not the sort of thing that you'd want to put on Twitter. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. Oh, I was slipping, and now it turns out that eventually they're going to be slipping. You cast them down to ruin. I thought I was ruined, but now the enemies of God are going to be ruined? How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors as a dream when one wakes? So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. The psalmist gives us a very clear jolt of electricity to awaken us in the middle of our trouble to say Christianity has no good answers for suffering if you become part of the soil merely after you die. If it is for this life, the Apostle Paul assures, this is its public service announcement. This is its disclaimer. This is the fine print, but they don't make it fine. They make it loud. If it's for this life that you believe in Jesus Christ, this life only, it is a terrible deal. You are more pitiful than the people in our culture think Christians are even now. They already think we're stupid and naive and what else? Uh, racist and homophobic and whatever else they think. Add to it pitiable. If your life ends at death. If this life is all there is, you're a fool to even be here this now, this morning. Christianity's got no hope for you, no help for you. And this is part of what he's realizing, what happens in the middle of my trouble when I feel so injured by God. Not only am I plagued every morning, punished every morning, but also it looks like the wicked, the people who say, I don't care about God. God doesn't know nothing. God ain't watching nothing. God's not looking, so I'm going to take advantage where I can. I'm going to I'm going to lie, I'm going to cheat, I'm going to steal, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and things are going to fall pleasantly for me. And that injures me, God. I thought we were in a relationship. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But all the scores, all the accounts are not going to be settled by next Tuesday. It's really important to realize. God's not going to sort of remedy all that is unwell in the world by March the 22nd. He might, but it doesn't seem likely. What the scripture wants to say is, you got to hang on. For all things sad to be made untrue, you got to hang on for when God takes over the whole earth and wipes away every tear. And as John Ames said, there's no diminishing the loveliness of the image of God wiping away every tear to say that there will be plenty of tears to wipe away. But it's going to happen later. It's going to happen after. 
And as Miyagi would tell us, after, after. If you don't think of eternity, then Christianity's got nothing good for you. The apostle says, we consider that our slight and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. If we want to reign with Christ in this new world that he is fashioning, we have to suffer with him now. So are you concerned about injustice? Good, you should be. Is God going to rectify all of it now? No. But I understand their final destiny. Eventually, the enemies of God who will not bow the knee, they will be destroyed, he says. They'll become like fantasies. And screw tape, I mean, in the great divorce... The envisioning of the people in hell is that, one, none of them want to be in heaven. They all have very valid excuses why they don't want to be where reality is. And see, Lewis has this strong sense that reality, like we're in a version of reality, but it's like, it's like a mother and a child being in a cave, and the mother's trying to teach the child, what's the world like outside of you? So she draws pictures of trees and mountains. She draws pictures of other people. She draws pictures of birds. And it becomes clear to her at some point that the little boy starts to believe that a tree is that drawing. It's two-dimensional. It's made of lead lines. And she's beside herself. What do I do? That's just a depiction of a tree. That is so far from what an actual, full, real tree is, a drawing of a tree. And Lewis said, that's what our life is like. We think, we think this is real and that somehow heaven is just like not. He says, no, 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 no. Heaven and what is going to be the world to come, that's ultimate reality. We're like a stick drawing here on earth. So the things we will encounter will be even more real. That's why in heaven, in the great divorce, the people of hell, they're like ghosts. They're so flimsy, they can't even walk on the blades of grass in heaven. The grass is so sturdy. It's so vigorous. It's not flimsy. And all of hell can fit in a crack of the sidewalk of heaven. Because that is unreality. People are diminished into nothing. As you shrink down into yourself, as you become your own boss, you become your own evaluator. And you say to God, I got this. You shrink and shrink and shrink into nothing. But the people who bow the knee, who say, Lord, it's you that I want. It's you who makes me what I am. These people grow and grow and grow into a solid and substantial and healing reality. You've got to be educated from and then exit from your envy. And you've got to enter into divine reality. And as you enter into divine reality, you start to realize that it's not just this life, but there's life to come. And the scriptures want to assure you of that, that the pathway for those who are attached to Christ is suffering, which leads to glory. Yet I am always with you, he says. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. See, what happens is that his suffering winds up being like a snowstorm. If you have kids in your house, you will know that one of the most magnificent things that could ever happen in the history of humanity is during the school year, there could be a, there could be a snow. 
we have lots of conversations in our house like, why are you expecting snow? We live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It doesn't snow that often. I'm always trying to have them protect themselves from over-expectation because that's how I roll. But you know what happens when there's a snowstorm? And everything gets shut down. It's God's way of saying to everybody, like, hey, calm down, fellas and, fa- and gals. Like, I run this place. You're stressing out and on the verge of a panic attack. You've got so much to do. There's so much responsibility. You're nervous and concerned and worked up about so much. Boom, snow. And all of a sudden, two days after being fretting about some kind of meeting, you're out sledding. Because what else are you going to do? You can't get anywhere. All of a sudden, all the concerns get shrunk down to, like, basic survival. How are we not going to freeze when the power's out? What are we going to eat? All the other stuff gets pushed away. You get focused. What the psalmist realizes, what has happened to him in the middle of his own travail, is like a snowstorm. This suffering has focused him to realize, oh, I've been envying and wanting all these things, but what I really, really, really want. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. See, it's not, it's not Thomas Kincaid stuff on a painting to say that our hearts were made for God. When you have suffered the kind of anguish like this, and many of you have, you start to realize, oh, there are problems so deep that having enough money isn't going to solve them. Having enough friends isn't going to solve them. Having enough health is not going to solve them. There are anguishes in my soul that are so cavernously deep. There has got to be some connection with God. I've got to have some healing, relational meeting up with God to heal me. And suffering has a way of weaning you off of all of the other things you might trust in so that you get to the point and you say, as for me, it's good to be near God. That's what I need more than anything. If I'm near to God, then I can, I can make it through anything. And if I'm not near to God, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But if I am near to God, I realize that this relationship powers me through every single thing. I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You think about that. God's holding us. Our right hand, which means with his left, which means his right hand, with his strong right hook, is free. The hand of his power is able to defend us. My family growing up had a dog. It was a beautiful, insane dog. He had true mental disturbances. His name was Opie. So named for Opie Taylor on the Andy Griffith Show. This beautiful dog at some point began to exhibit signs of at least 14 different maladies from the DSMV-4 manual. And he would inexplicably move from sweetness, you'd be petting him, and then he would become Cujo, like a miniature Cujo who was just destroying you viciously, not like, you take off your limbs. And one day, it was always a surprise. He'd be sleeping. He'd just walk by and he'd just wake up and gnaw off your leg. I'm not being hyperbolic. 
Well, so one day my grandmother was at the house and my grandfather was there and this dog, Opie, sweet name, vicious character, he just sort of lit into my grandmother, took, started biting her arm viciously. And it was in a stirring scene when I think about this, when I think about a strong right hand. My grandfather was stronger than all of you. And he had big, meaty hands. And he got up quickly as my grandmother was being bitten by this dog. And he came over without hesitation, and he just swatted it off of her. The dog ceased to bite her. He did not have anything else to do with her. Because my grandfather's right hand took care of the situation. It didn't kill him. It just got him away. Do you think this is what being in relationship with God is? You have this power that holds you where you're weak. That can see you through anything. And that God might just be configuring your life in such a way that you can come to learn how valuable and precious it is that you have this relationship. See, the danger is not likely that you're going to be argue out of this relationship. The danger is just you're going to by neglect, not care about this relationship. All God has to, I mean, all the devil has to do, all the world has to do, all your flesh has to do is just do your normal life. And you'll be constantly distracted. You'll be constantly subverted. You'll constantly assume there's something else to get and that God's nothing. But as for me, it's good to be near God. We want answers for our misinterpretations. We want God to somehow say, here's why I'm doing this. Here's why you sustained this loss. Here's why this job has not worked out the way you wanted. Here's why things are going so horridly with your children. Here's why. Let me explain it to you. That's what we want. But we find over and over again that's not what we get. Asaph just says, I realize you're going to write the score later, but just not by next Tuesday. But I've got you, and you've got me. That's what our arrangement is. Yesterday at the soccer game, this is the last story. Yesterday at the soccer game, I had failed to realize until there was a score that we were seated amidst a large number of Atlanta United soccer fans geeked up with the newness of their situation. And I had no idea until they scored. And when they scored one time, the fans all around me in red and black, they erupted in this euphoric applause. The stands were shaking. It was an exciting moment for those Atlanta people. I wasn't cheering for Atlanta. And everybody was cheering around us except for one person who had a discordant reaction. A baby. A baby who had been asleep. A baby who suddenly had been sound asleep on a lovely Saturday afternoon outing when cruel, vicious marauders stole her peace Frightened her awake. Gave her a cardiac infarction. She was terrified. She was living in a nightmare. Why all this noise? And she was acting like she was in a nightmare. She was screaming inconsolably. Ah, You could hear her all, all the way up to Dayton. And 
you know what I didn't notice? I didn't notice her mom or her dad saying, will you calm down? You're being a little unreasonable. They just scored a goal. You'll be fine. They're cheering. They're not mad at you. Quit taking everything so personally. You're always doing this. You're so reactive. When are you going to get some maturity? Some emotional stability. They didn't say any of this to this little three-month-old. But instead what they did was this mom just held her extra tight. She did that nervous, extra squeezy thing. The more the baby's crying, the harder I'm going to squeeze and rock and hope that this baby's going to be all right. There was no explaining to be done. It wouldn't have mattered. She couldn't get it. So her mom just tried to help her through it by holding her real close and then helping her walk away from all the dangerous noise by being up close to the one who loved her best and most. See, your God, as depicted in the person of Jesus Christ, who loves us best and most, he's probably not going to tell you why you're suffering as you are, why you've lost as you have. But he will. For any who will call out to him for it, he'll hold you close. He'll see you through. And in the end, you're going to be very glad. 